God's people say. Walking the dog here. All right. Our scripture reading this morning and the text that we'll be in, so if you have your Bibles, you can open here. It's Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, where the Holy Scriptures say, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me this morning? Father, we come to you this morning, and we just ask, Lord, that you would bless us as your people through the preaching of your word. Father, I ask that I would speak your words, not mine that I wouldn't add my opinions, my thoughts, but only yours, for that is what we are here for, and that alone. And we worship you through that, through the preaching of your word. Help us now. Make us more like Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Throughout history, there have been many people who have made super extraordinary claims, but few of them we're able to back them up. See, it's easy to make the claim, but to prove it and back it up is a whole different thing. For instance, one man, Michael Mad Mike Hughes, you know it's trouble already, claimed that the earth was flat. So he built his own homemade rocket ship so he could fly to outer space and take pictures in order to prove it. However, during the launch... He had a malfunction with the attached parachute device, which caused him to crash into the California desert, rendering his bold claim unproven and rendering his life lost. Claim not substantiated. In 1993, Gary Hoy, a 38-year-old lawyer living in Toronto, set out to prove something unique, and it was that skyscraper window panes You couldn't break them. No human could break those things. You would have to have a special device because they were that strong because they don't want people breaking through them and plummeting to their death. And so one day he had a bunch of visiting law students there and Hoy was telling them all about how you could not break it. And he demonstrated it by running into the window at full speed and hitting it. And it didn't break. However, some other students came by and they wanted to see it. So he did it again which sadly resulted in the window breaking and him falling 24 stories to his death. Claim unsubstantiated. 
In July of 2017, Jay and Lauren, they were a young couple in their 20s, who they set out to prove, and maybe some of you remember this in the news, but here's what they set out to prove, and I quote, evil is a make-believe concept. It's a concept we've invented to deal with the complexities of fellow humans holding values and beliefs and perspectives different than our own. Keeps going. By and large, humans are kind, self-interested sometimes, myopic sometimes, but kind, generous and wonderful and kind. Just touches your heart, doesn't it? Oh, honey. This idealistic young couple quit their office jobs in Washington, D.C. to set out on their peaceful trip, bicycling across the gorgeous mountain roads of Tajikistan. However, as they were traveling across the road, a vehicle with several young men in it went by them, suddenly made a sharp U-turn, and returned, and I won't go into the details, but claim unproven as they lost their lives from those who thought quite differently on the matter. As days later, ISIS leaders took responsibility for the attack, thus sadly and tragically proving that evil wasn't quite so make-believe as they had thought. One more example of a bold claim, and this is of a young man who was completely and totally paralyzed. He couldn't walk at all, and he was paralyzed, I should tell you, in a time in history where there there were no wheelchairs, there were no elevators, there weren't even handicapped parking stalls. Imagine that. And one day, this young man heard a rumor, and the rumor was this. There's somebody who can now cure your legs. For a moment, his heart leapt for joy. For that would make so he could not only walk, but it would make so he was finally no longer viewed as a social outcast. See, in this culture, they believe that if you had health problems, why was that? Well, it's because you were a sinner and you were clearly under the punishment of God. We don't have anyone like that in our culture today, do we? Of course we do. And so this young man, well, he certainly desired to walk again. He certainly also desired to no longer be viewed as a social outcast, to be free from this social stigma, to be free from the constant haunt of guilt, shame, and rejection, wondering if he had offended God. But how could he be made to walk again was the question. Well, what he was told was by a man, a teacher, a rabbi who had become the talk of the town. For this rabbi, this miracle worker, it was said that he could make the lame walk, he could make the blind see, and he could make the lepers clean. That's a pretty bold claim, right? At first, this young man didn't believe it. But over time, more and more people kept promising and swearing that they saw the miracles themselves. They saw this great miraculous power at work, which caused this young man to then wonder, to begin to imagine, to even to dare to hope. However, being paralyzed, he had no way to get to this rabbi, no way to get to this teacher, and so he would have to find a way there. He would have to find others to carry him there. And thankfully, he had four good friends, and so they set out carrying this young man on a small bed to meet this great miracle worker. However, when they reached their destination, they found that the place was absolutely packed. Like, they were not getting in there. 
This teacher was in a house surrounded by the crowds as he was teaching, and they had no hope of getting this man on the stretcher, makeshift stretcher that they had made, in to see Jesus. But then one of them had an idea, and it was this. What if we got him up to the roof, took the roof apart a little bit, because it's not like the roofs we have today. You actually take them apart pretty easily, and then lowered him down with rope to see this great teacher. So that's exactly what they did. They hoisted him up onto the roof, began taking the ceiling apart until there was a wide enough opening where they could then use ropes to carefully lower their hurting friend down in his bed right before the great teacher and miracle worker. There was a hush as the crowd went silent as they watched expectantly to see what this rabbi would do. And then, after this pause, with a look of endearment, the rabbi looked at the young man in his eyes, and he said something unexpectedly. Your sins are forgiven. Some gasped in shock. Maybe even this young man wondering, that's not fully what I came for. For it was one thing to claim to be able to heal the sick. It was another thing entirely to make an outrageously bold statement that he could forgive sins. Who does this man think he is? Only God can forgive sins, right? Like, what are, you, what are you thinking? And so then realizing their thoughts, the rabbi turned to them and asked, why do you have such evil thoughts in your hearts? No one responded. And so he went on. What is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? And so to prove that I have the authority to forgive sins, he then turned to the young man and said, stand up, pick up your bed, and go. And without hesitation, this man popped right to his feet as if he had walked his whole life, picked up his bed, and walked out with the crowd's eyes fixed upon him, which without a doubt proved the boldest of all claims. The claim that Jesus, this rabbi, this miracle worker, had the authority and the power to forgive sins. Last week, we just finished Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus' disciple, Matthew, he told us all about Jesus' kingly authority. That's, that's Matthew's point. He's like, Jesus is king, and he just keeps hammering us with that over and over and over, trying to show us that Jesus has kingly authority. And as we mentioned at the start of the service, what does he have authority over? Well, we saw he has authority over sickness and disease, authority over the natural realm as he calmed basically a hurricane with a shh. And then he has authority over the supernatural realm as he can cast out demons with one word, simply saying, go. And we saw that last week. But this morning, we are beginning a brand new chapter, chapter 9. And chapters 8 and 9, they really go together. It's all about showing Jesus' great authority and power. And in chapter 9, we find that Jesus' authority is much greater than calming hurricanes with his voice, much greater than casting out demons with a word. Jesus has the authority to do the most difficult thing of all, which is to forgive sin. And this was demonstrated by his authority where he healed this paralyzed man. That was the proof of his bold claim. Do you realize that this is the boldest claim of all of Jesus' claims? Make no mistake about it, this absolutely is. This is a remarkable claim for who can forgive sins besides God alone. That's precisely what Luke and Mark tell us that, the, that these 
other teachers pointed out. They're like, only God can forgive. Who does this man think he is? And that's precisely Matthew's point, isn't it? For Jesus, the Son of Man, is the Son of God, which means that he is God, and as God, he alone has authority to forgive us, to heal us of our sin. That's what all of Jesus' healings were pointing to, right? Because every person who got healed, you know what happened to them within 100 years? They died. It was pointing to the greater healing that we need, which is the forgiveness of our sins. And so this morning, if you have your Bibles, turn with us to Matthew chapter 9, where we are going to see three things about Jesus' authority to heal sin, and here they are. Jesus' authority to heal our sin is first, crucial, second, costly, and third, consequential. Let's look at that first one. Why does it matter that Jesus has the authority to heal our sin? Isn't it obvious? Because as we know, sin is at the core, root, foundational problem to every single thing this world faces, every single hardship this world faces. And another thing, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but do you know who this young, paralyzed man really is? You know who he represents? You. Me. All of us. This young man is all of us. Wait, though, preacher, I'm not paralyzed. I walked in here just fine today. Oh, but you are. See, every single one of us, like this young man, is born into the world Not physically paralyzed always, sometimes, but not always, but spiritually paralyzed. We are completely unable to pick up our mats and move about because of our sin. We're tied to our mats. We're chained to these mats. And so until we are healed by Christ from our sin, we're left crippled in our sin. We don't have a hope of moving about. And if you don't believe that, just look around a little bit. Why is there suffering? Sin. Why is there hardship in this world? Sin. Why is there relational difficulty in this world? Why is there loss in this world? Sin. And we have relational difficulty not just with each other, not just horizontally, but ultimately this is because of the vertical difficulty we have in our relationship with God. For because of our sin, our ultimate relational difficulty is with God himself, which is our biggest problem. Because that relational difficulty, that sin, that offense against the holy God, that not only leads to one day our physical death, but ultimately to our spiritual death in a place called hell. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And so because sin leads to death, until the problem of our sin is dealt with, there is no life. There is no everlasting life. There is no peace. There's no shalom, right? And what is shalom? That's not some foreign food. Shalom is peace. We know that. Boy, does our world need peace, does it not? Absolutely it does. Do you realize that shalom, peace, is the central element of Jesus' divine mission? See, Jesus didn't have to come to the world to bring judgment. He didn't need, he could have done that all on his own. But to bring peace, that required Jesus' divine mission of being born into this world. And the peace of God that he brings isn't just for healing us, it's actually for healing the entire world. Did you know that? It is. Which is why in Romans 8, Paul tells us about this healing of the entire world, where he writes about how it's not just we who groan, 
and long to be fully and finally healed from the curse of sin. But actually in that passage, he says, all of creation itself is groaning, waiting for the day when the full healing will happen. And that tells us something absolutely remarkable, church. Death is not a part of the original plan. Suffering is not a part of the original creation. See, in the Bible... It doesn't take a genius to figure this out, but if you read Genesis to Revelation, there's a big point. Death is an enemy. Death is not a good thing. Death is not a necessary element of this world. It's actually our greatest nemesis, which is why once we've tasted the healing that Christ brings, you know what we can confidently say? We can say this as Paul did. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. However, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is freedom from sin and death the cry of your heart and the cry of my heart, it's the cry that we find resounding all throughout the scriptures, especially in the book of the Psalms. For instance, in Psalm 32, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression, sin, is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in those in whose spirit there is no deceit. That doesn't say blessed is the man who never has any aches or pains, does it? Blessed is the man who has a long and prosperous and happy, happy life with blessings and good health. And fa- No, blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Psalm 79.9 says this, Help us, O God of our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Is this just wishful thinking? Is this just the psalmist crying out with the greatest desire of the human heart with no response from heaven coming back? According to Matthew, it's absolutely not. For though we cry this out, heaven answered back. For according to Matthew, they were answered in Jesus. You remember back in chapter 1, don't you? In Matthew chapter 1, this is what Matthew told us. Speaking of Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will what? Save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, which they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. No longer God against us, God with us. This is huge. This is wonderful. This healing is longed for by our hearts, but more importantly, this healing was promised by God and provided for us in Jesus Christ. And if we're going to experience this healing, we have to recognize first off that we need it. We have to recognize that we are absolutely spiritually paralyzed. And so we can't go on living pretending like we're not, like everything's okay, because it's not okay. This world is a wretched mess, and it's because of this sin problem that we are separated from God who desperately needs to be healed. And that healing only, and I use the word only again, comes from Christ. Christ is the one and only person who has not only the authority to heal us, the power to heal us, the power to forgive our sins. That's wonderful. Matthew tells us that Jesus healed this young man so that he could walk again. And I'm 
sure that he was very much appreciative of being able to use his legs, right? Like if you were in a wheelchair, if you couldn't move and walk about, especially back in the time when they didn't have wheelchairs and you had to kind of crawl about as best as you can and get help moving about, you would certainly appreciate Jesus restoring your ability to walk, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would. However, let me ask you this. What eventually happened to this young man? He aged. He got old even to the point where his body withered, fade, and eventually he would die. And as he got to the end of his life, what do you think this young man appreciated more? Jesus' healing of his legs or Jesus' forgiving of his sins? Certainly it's the latter, right? Without a doubt, it's the forgiveness of sins. For without the forgiveness of sins, none of Jesus' healings make any difference at all. They don't. The same result still ensues, which is death, grave, separation, judgment. But because of Jesus' forgiveness of sins, this man, like all of us who trust in Christ, can one day experience that full healing that Christ brings. And so to be truly healed by Jesus, we must come to realize that our spiritual healing is our most vital and greatest crucial need, which is a healing that comes with great cost, as we know, which leads us to our second point. Jesus' authority to heal our sin is crucial, costly, and consequential. In our culture, we are so used to having everything with strings attached, aren't we? Yeah. And when it comes to religion, we naturally approach it in the same way, don't we? We think, okay, God has something I want. What's the conditions? What are the strings attached? What do I have to do to get it? And so how do we think about this? We start to think, okay, God hates sin. This simply means I got to sin less and do good things more. All right, that, that seems reasonable. That'll make him happy. More right things plus less wrong things equals righteous man. That's the cost, so we better pay it, right? But do you see the basis by which Jesus forgives this man's sins? Look at verse 2. You see it? Talk to me, church. What is it? What's the basis? One word. Faith. Faith. That's it. The question then is, what is this faith? And how do we get it? Have you ever heard someone say, I'm a man of faith? That is an entirely meaningless statement. <laughs> Really? Faith in what? Right? I have belief. Belief in what? Like, you haven't told me anything. Okay? Faith is not a substance. Faith is not a thing. Faith isn't a noun for my fellow grammar nerds. It's a verb. And if you forgot English grammar, that's okay, But because here's the point. You have to have faith in something, in someone. And what did this man put his faith in? Christ, you're a quiet bunch today. Christ, right? Jesus. And what did that cost him? Nothing. This is a complete 180 on religion, isn't it? Right? Because religion tells us you got to do this to get that. There's strings attached. But in Christ, it tells us it's faith. It's a gift. And this is a really, really difficult horse pill for some people to swallow in our culture, isn't it? 
Wait, you're telling me that I'm so bad that there's nothing I can do to make it better? No, I'm not, I'm not that bad. I've seen some bad people over there. I'm not as bad as them. Well, you are. So gobble down that humble pie and embrace the fact that the cost of your salvation, even if you are slightly better than the person next to you, is way too costly. You can't afford it. The price tag is way out of your budget. You can't afford it. And so it must be a gift, which is given to us by grace through faith when we simply accept it. That's it. And when it comes to giving out salvation to sinners, we already mentioned this before, but Jesus is the only game in town. That's your only option. You can't go to Buddha. You can't go to Allah. None of these guys who aren't real can save you. They're not gods. Jesus is God. Acts 4.12 says this, There is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Not a popular statement in our culture, is it? Well, that's pretty narrow. It's narrow-minded. But it's true. After Jesus tells the crowd that this man's sins are forgiven, he can immediately tell that some people are actually pretty triggered by this claim. And who got triggered? The scribes, who were the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And so Jesus serves them with a question in verse 5, and he says this to them. All right, scribes, all right, triggered people, answer me this. What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? What's the answer to that? Tough question. Jesus doesn't answer it. He just keeps going by it. And what does he do? He goes on and he says, I'm going to show you that I can forgive sins and prove this bold claim by visibly healing this man right here, showing you that I have the power of God within me, which verifies the statement that I am saying to you. And so he heals the man's body to show that his statement is true, which shuts down that blasphemy charge against Jesus right then and there. Because the thing is, how can you say that Jesus is blaspheming God in one moment and then using the power of God to heal in the next? Those don't fit. So the healing shows that Jesus has authority from God to both forgive sins and to heal. That's Jesus' point here. But still, Jesus didn't really answer that question, did he? Which is harder, to say your sins are forgiven or to say pick up your bed and walk? Well, on one hand, it's impossible for any of us to heal somebody else with our words right? Only God can do that. So on one level, I guess it's true to say that it is easier to simply say your sins are forgiven because, I mean, how do you test that? If I come to you, I'm like, hey, your sins are forgiven. You're like, oh, sweet, thanks. How do I know? Yeah, you know, like you have no way to, to prove that. However, if I come up to you and you can't walk and I say, hey, pick up your bed and walk, you're healed. And you're not healed, you're going to know instantly that I was a charlatan. I'm just making stuff up. I'm a fraud, right? So maybe that's what Jesus is talking about. But on the other hand, though, I'm not sure if that's what he's referring to here. Because as Christians, we know that the forgiveness of our sin before a holy and just God, it requires a whole lot more than just the words, you're forgiven, right? 
we know that that forgiveness that we are given freely by Christ came with an infinitely heavy cost. And that cost was the blood of Christ. It didn't cost God anything to send the plagues upon Egypt and to do all the wonderful things that he did for the Israelites, right? Like when he, when he parted the Red Sea, there, was there something he had to do to make so he could do that? No, absolutely not. When Jesus calmed the storm, did he say, okay, before I calm the storm, I got to go over here and I got to do all this stuff to make so I can do this? No. But for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, comes with a cost beyond what we could ever pay. It comes with a great cost, for it cost him his very life upon the cross. Psalm 79.9 says this, Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Isaiah 53, we read this about what that atonement that he's speaking of here actually costs. Okay, in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, here's what it costs. Speaking of Christ, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. For all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. Ironically, Jesus is both the one who heals our sin and is the sin bearer for our sin. That's what Isaiah is telling us. For by his wounds, we are healed. It's a humbling thought, isn't it? It should be. The result then is that for this man and for the rest of us, the, rest of us, the forgiveness that Jesus offered cost us nothing, but it cost Christ everything. Which makes the statement, your sins are forgiven, without a doubt, the infinitely more difficult of the two to actually fulfill. Right? It does. And with this great cost comes even great consequences, which leads us to our final point. Jesus' authority to heal our sin is crucial. Secondly, it's costly. And third, it's consequential. Let me ask you, when it comes to experiencing Jesus' healings of our sin, what happens after he heals us? What happened with this young man? What did he do? He just lay there? Like, oh, great, if I ever want to walk again, I guess I'll do it. No. He rose, he took up his bed, and he walked. Was it then the rising that healed this man? The fact that he jumped up and got some gusto and some initiative there, is that what healed him? No. Was it the walking that healed this young man? No, said the church, <laughs> right? Was it the carrying of the bed and obeying Jesus' command to do so? Did that heal him? No. It was the crucial and costly, gracious act of Jesus' divine, supernatural power that resulted in the rising, walking, and carrying. 
That make sense? Jesus enabled us to do that. We can't just do that. We have to get this right, church. This is huge. And so if you saw someone yelling at a cripple, a paralyzed man, for not walking, would you think, oh, yeah, you let him have it, that lazy bum. Get up on your legs and walk. No. You'd be like, knock it off, man. There's nothing he can do about it. He can't walk. He's paralyzed. And you'd be right. They absolutely can't rise. They can't walk. And they can't carry around anything. Not until they've been healed. However, what happens once they've been healed? There's a whole lot of rising, there's a whole lot of walking, and a whole lot of carrying that you're going to see in that person's life. Not because those actions heal them, but because they've been healed, those actions follow. Right? Which also means this. Think about this. What does it mean if you have a professing believer who claims to have been healed by the blood of Jesus, but you look at their life spiritually, and they don't have legs that move whatsoever. There's been no change, right? They're still laying on the same mat that they were 25 years ago. There's no rising. There's no walking. There's no caring. What should we conclude? We should conclude, I'm afraid, that we likely, likely, have a spiritual cripple on our hands. What is the proper response of spiritual cripples before a holy God? Look at verse 8. Fear. And fear swept through the crowd. In verse 6, Jesus uses that title that we've talked about a few times now in our study through the book of Matthew. What title does he use for himself here? Son of man. Right? What does that mean? Well, on one hand, unlike Son of God, Son of Man does emphasize Jesus' humanity. However, on another hand, it emphasizes Jesus' exalted power to rule and reign. And we see this in Daniel chapter 7. Let's, let's look at this. Here's what Daniel says. This is a prophecy of what he saw would come to be. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, title for God, and was presented before him. And to him, this son of man, who comes before the ancients of days, who is God, was given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom. He was given a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This means that someday, very, very soon, this Son of Man, who is none other than Jesus Christ, is going to return to do such that, just that, to rule and to reign. And when this happens, the consequences of Christ's healing will be on full display in one of two ways. One, there's going to be no more sickness. Isaiah 33 tells us about that. No inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Second off, there will be no more war. Speaking of Christ, the Son of Man, it says, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and become farmers. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, Neither shall they learn war anymore. 
there's also going to be no more injustice for this king will reign in righteousness. It's going to be a wonderful time. And finally, no more death. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God, and this is also quoted in Revelation, will wipe away the tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. You see this marvel, marvelous, wonderful consequence that is coming for us, church? That's our future. That's our destiny. To be free from sick, sin, and suffering as we are fully and finally healed to live forever with Christ for all of eternity. So let me ask you this morning, is that your hope? Is that your joy? For these are wonderful consequences for all those who have tasted this healing that Jesus gives, found in the gospel of grace, which alone offers forgiveness of our sins. However, the second consequence, if we haven't accepted that healing that comes through the gospel, is more dire than any of us can possibly fathom. For you, Christ is coming not to bring your healing, but your destruction. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, symbolizing the war. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And then from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The consequences of rejecting Christ's healing are very dire. And so I ask you, have you experienced the healing and forgiveness that is found only in Christ? The healing that he offers to us freely? If you answer that question with a yes, don't just simply tell me it's true. Show me in your life how it's true. What in your life can you point to that shows that you've gone from being a spiritual cripple, lying on that mat, unable to keep up and obey God's law, unable to please God, unable to be what you know God calls you to? What in your life shows that you've gone from being a spiritual cripple to a spiritual marathon runner? For while rising, walking, and carrying will not save you, if you have been saved, make no mistake about it. You will rise, you will walk, and you will carry. Why, though? Because Christ walked, carried, and rose for us. How? By walking up a hill after he was scourged, beaten, and bloodied for your sin, for my sin. And as he walked up that hill, he was forced to carry the cross that you and I built with our sins, the cross that you and I deserved. 
And then as we know, when he reached the top of that hill, he willingly, without a fight, laid himself down so he could be nailed to that cross and raised high where he would hang and die for the sins of the world. Your sins, my sins. And it was absolutely crucial for our healing. That was the cost and consequences of our healing. For as Isaiah told us, by his stripes, we are healed. Father, I thank you for this text. Lord, I pray for the one here who says, you know what, I don't know if I actually have seen any spiritual healing in my life. I haven't seen any rising, any walking, any caring. My obedience to Christ is minimal at best. Father, I pray for that person that today would be the day of salvation for them. I pray that they would seek me out for spiritual counsel. Somebody in this church, seek them out for spiritual advice so that they may see and know that they have salvation, which is freely, fully, and finally given to us in Christ. Father, I pray for the believer here today who has gotten their eyes off of the gospel. Maybe they've returned to believing in law and turned and started to believe that they're rising, walking, and caring is the basis by which they are accepted by you. Help them to realize that there's no amount of that that they could do to ever please you. And so we praise you that for by the gospel, we are saved freely by grace and then empowered to live the life we could never live. And so, Lord, I pray that you enable us as a church to reach out to those around us who are in darkness. Help us to bring the light of the gospel to them. And help us, Father, to live the gospel in our lives where they will look to us and say, how are those paralyzed cripples walking? How are they able to do what they do? And then when they ask that, we can humbly point them to Christ, the one who walked, who carried, and rose for us so that we too might one day rise again. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Just stand with us this morning as we sing our closing song, Is He Worthy?